Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. It's Wednesday, November 4th. Coming up, the feds are looking to make changes to the Broadcast Act. They want streaming services like Netflix and Spotify to invest in and promote Canadian productions. Canada Research Chair Michael Geist and Alan Cross will join us for their perspective on is this a good or a bad thing for consumers? But first, with the U.S. election too close to call and mail-in ballots still being counted, we reached out to Frank McKenna, former ambassador to the U.S., and Molly Jong-Fast, editor at The Daily Beast, for insight into this historic moment. Ladies first. Oh, thanks for having me. I have to ask, uh, the polls were predicting that Biden would win. What is the problem with your polling besides it being wrong? (laughs) I was just thinking about that this morning. I I was talking about to my producer for the podcast, and I was like, we have to do a whole segment on why polling. I mean, polling has to be dead after this. You don't get to call everything wrong all the time and still have an industry. So, um. I just think they're not polling in the way they need to be polling and that it's too reliant. It's probably too reliant on on just not accurate enough markers. But, yeah, that for for certain, the biggest loser of the night is pollsters. Is there do you think there's some um, component of shame that's associated with with people, you know, when they're asked, you know, and they're not in a group, but when they're asked alone, um, did you throw your support behind Donald Trump, who we know has, you know, been, it's been a chaotic four years. The things he says are, I mean, people will argue me on this and I think it's crazy, but um, the things he says are shameful uh, and uh, and not things that you would normally say in public. So it could be, that be where the polls have got it wrong. Is it just in regard to uh, this one, um, uh, this one candidate? No, you know, I don't think so, actually, because uh, they were really wrong in the Senate. And in fact, it's going to look like I think, but I um, it's it's sounding like Biden's going to win and that they that pollsters. So in that sense, pollsters will have been right about Biden largely, though off by the margins and then wrong about the Senate candidates. And I'm not sure why anyone would lie and say they weren't supporting a Senate candidate like you know, a Susan Collins versus, a, you know, like they were so off in these Senate races where Trumpism isn't even necessarily a factor that I would that it feels to me that the question is really I don't think it's about shy Trump voters as much as it's about just methodology. Methodology is off. OK, so you think polling should be abolished? Well, I think that whatever they're doing is clearly not working because every election cycle, they say to pundits, oh, don't worry, the Democrats ahead. Oh, don't worry, this is going to be a repudiation of Trumpism. And then every uh, election we sit there and we are like, you guys. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think they have to figure something else out, probably. Do you think I I imagine that this election was going to be more of a referendum on Trump? Yeah. And it doesn't seem like that because there there are battlegrounds that are too close to call right now. Uh, Did you view this election in the same way? I, I mean, I think all people who have a moral compass were were convinced that the American people would do the right thing and refudiate Trumpism not just because of its racism and sexism and immorality, but also because 
um, of its stupidity and the fact that it's killed 200 plus 220, 230,000 Americans, um, needlessly. Uh, so I think most of us thought that people would be, um, you know, sensible and also good and repudiate Trumpism. Now, Trump has done less well in the suburbs. That was true. So suburban women, I think, will see what this shakes out at the end. But it does seem like Trump is underperforming in a lot of these suburban areas and that that will push Biden over the top. But, you know, Trump has managed to trick a, a lot more voters, which is, you know, really scary, because even despite what's happened, he's managed to sort of sell a bunch of different really kind of sketchy narratives. And we saw this in Florida. And that, I think, is really scary. And I think that is sort of the worst for American democracy is that, you know, this guy who's not even a very good re- reality television host is um, is tricking a lot of people. The one thing I would say is there are reasons as a Democrat to be hopeful. And if you look at Texas, Texas is a great example. I mean, Texas was an unwinnable state for Democrats even one election cycle ago. So even though this feels very bleak, the demographics in America are changing. And, you know, we are eventually going to be a blue country that that is you know much more progressive it's just taking a little time what does the closeness of this election say about the divisions not only in america but within the battleground states yeah it's not good i mean i think i i mean i think we can't underestimate how partisan partisans are right like the, uh, i think that a lot of us thought more Republicans would break away from Trump than actually have that actually have. I think that it takes a lot for people to leave their party, which is really disturbing for any number of reasons. I would say also the thing that we're that we see is there was a very high turnout. And I assumed as a lot, I think a lot of people did, that a high turnout would break for the Democrat. And, you know, Trump, I feel like we continually underestimate how good the president of the United States for now, Trump, is at tricking people. Like, he's very good. He's a very good messenger. And even though we all, you know, most educated people know that his message is insane and improbable and that he's a liar, he, that lot, those lies still translate. And some people in America still think that, you know, he's going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. Well, I mean, it's also predictable because he has leaned towards, um, you know, whipping people into a frenzy based on their fear. And the fear was, oh, no, mail in votes. Democrats have been mailing in votes. We need, you know, we need to get out to the polls. And he, you know, if you voted because of fear, I I mean, the good thing is you voted. I mean, I know that could not work out in Democrats favor. It is good to vote. Um, But but. It worked. So John Bolton, Trump's former national security advisor, was talking uh, to Canada the other day, and he said, if Trump doesn't willingly leave the White House after a clear defeat, prominent Republicans will face a character test. Do you agree with that? I mean, prominent Republicans have been facing a character test this whole time and they've lost. Right. I mean, (laughs) what? Now you're going to draw the line in the sand, you know? I mean, there is no dignity in the Republican Party anymore. And these people who are like, and now this is a bridge too far. He called Mexicans rapists. 
Like, mm. this has been a bridge too far for five years. Like, I don't think that there, I mean, whoever is decent and left in the Republican Party, those five people need to get it together. But I think, like, this is not a refutation of Trumpism. So this does not mean that, you know, those people are gone, right? Even if Trump loses, which it looks like he will, you know, there's QAnon in the Congress. Like, this is a country that has got a lot of, <laughs> it's got a lot of problems. And, I was and talking that. I mean, go on. No, uh, no, finish your thought, because I'm sure it's going to be interesting. No, I just was saying this is a country, you know, this is not a country. We had hoped that this was a country that could close the door on Trumpism last night, and that did not happen. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives out in Seattle, and I noticed on one of her social media posts she was having like a backyard campfire just trying to kind of soothe her anxieties on how this election would go. Uh, Last time we spoke was in 2016, the night of the election, where she thought history was going to be made with a woman being put into the White House, and we all know how that ended up. And here we are today, and she was telling me that um, it is bizarre in Seattle right now that that, uh, buildings are boarded up. Um, that people have started to stockpile fuel, food, water, because they're nervous about how things will go. If Biden wins, do you think this divided nation will be returning to normal behavior? Or is there something that that is sinister that's kind of lurking uh, just under the surface, well, vaguely under the surfaces in some places that might rear its head? I mean, I think Biden winning is, is a better chance for a normal uh, tomorrow in America than then um then not if that makes any sense so i think that we're likely uh we're likely to look we're i don't think that this is going to be you know everything was boarded up but i don't really think that that is i think that was just sort of paranoia i don't think we're going to descend into chaos and madness but i do think that um I do think that if you want someone to lead you out of it, it's better to have the guy who's the, you know, going to be president for all of Americans versus the guy who thinks that all, you know, who said all these inflammatory things. What's your prediction on how this election will go? I think Biden wins the presidency. And then I think that the Senate is a fight and that ultimately Republicans maintain a very slim lead over the Senate. And um, it's very tough. So um, I think it's going to be four more years of suckery. I mean, you know, even Trump, even though Trump is defeated, Trumpism is not going to be repudiated in the way we hoped. Molly, I want to thank you for your time. It's been really interesting talking to you. And uh, it's going to be a a couple of uncertain days for you ahead, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Okay. Former ambassador to the States, Frank McKenna. Welcome to the show, Mr. McKenna. Good to have you on. Thank you, Kelly. Good morning. So what can Canadians expect from four more years of Donald Trump or, or a change in leadership with Joe Biden? Well, uh, look, I think with, with Donald Trump, uh, what you've seen is what you'll get. Um, and that's mainly characterized by uh, unpredictability. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't follow conventional rules. He, he doesn't treat his friends any different from the way he treats his enemies. And uh, we've been subject to asymmetric retaliation on steel, aluminum, threats on autos, threats on tearing up NAFTA, uh, and pretty harsh language with our political leaders if they don't uh, fall in line for him. So that's what we've had from him. Um, 
if uh, if the government were to change, uh, we'll see a, a, a dramatic change in tone at the top. It'll be a much more civil relationship. We'll still have lots of uh, pucks fired at the net on the trade front. Uh, that's just the nature of, of, of a large commercial relationship. Um, and we'll probably have uh, some some disagreement on energy. We'll have a lot of um, agreement on climate change issues. Um, and um, and hopefully we'll be able to get in on the major infrastructure program that uh, uh, President Biden, if he's elected, intends to introduce, which would be very stim- stimulative to the U.S. economy and to ours. Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, he warned that the relationship between the U.S. and Canada could deteriorate even further in a second second term uh, with Trump, because Trump thinks that Canada has, quote, out-negotiated past U.S. administrations on trade and defense fan- matters for decades. He told that to the CBC. Now, both Trudeau and O'Toole publicly have stated that they remain open to working with whoever's declared the U.S. president. Yesterday, we saw the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, call on Americans to vote Trump out. How important is it for our Canadian leaders to have at least an air of neutrality? Well, it's very important, and I think our two the, uh, two leaders of our uh, main uh, political parties have acted very responsibly and in Canada's in- interest. And I think, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, Singh has spoken as somebody who will never become the leader of the country, and easy for him to say. But if you have, uh, if you're either uh, the prime minister or a prospective prime minister, you have to realize 75% of our exports go to the United States of America. And we can be vigorous in defending our interest, uh, but we can't be. Uh, but but we can't be partisan about it. We have to respect the choice they make uh, of their political officers and deal with the people that are there. Yesterday, Trump declared himself the winner and was alleging that there's widespread fraud. <laughs> Would you agree that the member of Re- Republicans right now and that Republican establishment are facing a huge character test, especially after that? Yeah, look, that's a good way to put it. That that was uh, that was that was a disgraceful piece of theater, um, declaring victory when the votes are still being counted, and 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 threatening to bring in the lawyers and stop um, the election and and et cetera, et cetera. It, it was nothing short of disgraceful, but it, but it is in character. Um, and as we see now, as the votes are counted, we've seen a switch just in the last hour in Michigan. Don't know if it'll hold up. Narrow leads for Biden and. Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, um, if they all hold up, he has a path through to be the president of the United States uh, without even waiting for Pennsylvania and all of the issues that go with Pennsylvania. So so they're, 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 both sides have paths to victory here, um, and, uh, and, and Trump is just going to have to respect the process. And I think he does a huge disfavor to the United States in the eyes of the world when he uh, basically uh, flaunts the rules of democracy and uh, and spends so much effort on voter suppression and voter challenge rather than on uh, on simply trying to get votes uh, uh, people to vote for him. It it's a very very unseemly posture for the United States. We're speaking with the former ambassador to the states, Frank McKenna. Frank, do you feel that Trump's changed American diplomacy forever? I hope not. Um, look, and I say that he, he's entitled to do what he does, but what he has done effectively is create Fortress America. He likes bilateral relationships where U.S. can use its heavy weight to uh, to end up with a, uh, a better result. Uh, he doesn't like multilateral tribunals. 
Um, I think that he has the potential to take the U.S. back to the dirty 30s after they enacted uh, Smoot-Hawley and, and put up protectionist barriers around themselves. Protectionist barriers create protectionist barriers, and the world is a, a poor place, especially emerging markets in the world and the poorest people in the world uh, when you close off borders uh, to trade. And uh, I'm afraid that's the direction that he's headed in. I think it would be wrong. I think it's wrong for the United States to uh, abrogate its leadership on so many large multilateral files, whether it's fighting the pandemic through WHO or whether it's creating an orderly uh, means of, uh, of having world trade through the WTO or, or dealing with climate change through the Paris Accords um, or dealing with uh, the threat of Iran through an, an Iranian uh, uh, peace treaty. Um, all of those things, uh, to me, are very threatening to the world. So uh, Canada's got its own set of concerns about the bilateral relationship, but we live in a big world as well. And we need a rules-based system in the, in the world uh, for Canada t- to do well, and quite frankly, the rest of the world. And that is my fervent hope, that we'll get back to uh, a world that's more multilateral, more cooperative, uh, where it's not going to be beggar thy neighbor, but uh, how can we help each other? What does Canada have to keep in mind when dealing with the United States moving on, moving forward? Well, we, we have to keep in mind that uh, it's a very fractious uh, uh, relationship, uh, but fundamentally grounded in being neighbors, being friends, being cousins, being allies, uh, and that below the level of the presidency, it's all very, very sound. We also have to remember, and I'm using inelegant words, but it's, it's the word of a U.S. statesman, that what the fat boy in the canoe does really matters. And uh, so we have to be conscious of just how how much influence the U.S. can have, so we have to stay close to them, but also China. Uh, we, have to, we have to watch what these large giants do because they can have a big impact on us. And I think we have to w- work on new relationships. Interprovincial trade in Canada should be a no-brainer. Um, we need to be able to trade with ourselves before we trade with the world. Uh, we need to take advantage of the uh, European free trade, free trade deal and the, and the, and the Trans-Pacific deal. We, we've just got to get out of our rut of being locked in only to the United States and make sure that we've got optionality. Uh, we're not doing a very good job of that right now. And, uh, and I think the warning uh, signs from this election should, should tell us we better get at it with alacrity. Frank, are you willing to make any predictions on how the election will conclude? I think I should because I've been totally wrong all the way through uh, to date. Uh, I, I, so I, <laughs> very I brave well, of you to I admit might, that. I might as well double down on it. Okay. I, I think that uh, Biden has a path through to victory and that he will end up being president. I think the Senate will remain in the hands of the Republican with one or two seats to be decided a little further down the road. Um, that that could be uh, become a turning point, and a seat in uh, in Pennsylvania coming up in two years that could give Senate control back to the Democrats. But uh, for the present, I see uh, a house divided and gridlock where we may have a, a president of a different persuasion from the te- from the Senate. All right. Well, Frank, I w- I'll let you back at it and uh, monitoring what's going on south of the border. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for the call. Cheers. That's former ambassador to the States, Frank McKenna.
I'm going to take a step away from the American election for a minute and the counting of those votes. Too close to call right now. So who knows when we'll get the uh, the final word on exactly who is the president of the United States moving forward. Is it going to be four more years of Trump or will Joe Biden be the uh, president? What I want to talk about is something that our feds announced. Um, and I haven't heard other people talking about this, and I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, so I'd like to welcome to the show uh, Michael Geist, who is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet Law. Welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So why I wanted to reach out to you is that Justin Trudeau's government, they are uh, proposing new regulations to make the digital broadcasters, all those streaming services, your Netflix, your Craves, your Amazon Prime, and Spotify, your music streamers, to start paying for and uh, promoting CanCon. So what exactly is the government proposing? This is a change to the Broadcast Act. Maybe you could fill us in. That's right. It is a, it is a change to the Broadcast Act. And as many listeners, I'm sure, are aware, the, our current laws have mandated contributions from established broadcasters and broadcast distributors like cable and satellite companies where some of their revenues go into a pot to help fund Canadian content. Now, that's, that's largely seen as a regulatory quid pro quo. They get a whole series of advantages as part of that. Uh, if you're a broadcaster, you get simultaneous substitution, so you get to substitute in your commercials for U.S. commercials. You get copyright benefits in terms of retransmission. So you get all these benefits, you also pay. Uh, there have been some that have argued that, that, that there is still, despite that those benefits, there's still an unfair playing field because the Internet companies, the streamers, don't pay into a system. And so what the government has set out to do is to what they say is to create a, what they believe is a level playing field where there, there will be similar kinds of requirements both to pay in and to promote Canadian content. All right. So, I, I mean, looking at it just... As a as a listener, as an outsider, uh, traditional broadca- broadcasters, yeah, they follow one set of laws. Why should streamers be able to follow another? Well, I guess it starts with what I start, with what I pointed out a moment ago, and that is that in some ways there are different sets of rules because there are different sets of benefits and requirements. And so broadcasters get all kinds of benefits. The, the simultaneous substitution, for example, the ability to substitute your own commercials when you're running the same U.S. programming, is worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The Internet companies don't get any of those kinds of advantages. and so Well, they don't have they commercials. Compete. No, they don't have commercials, but they don't get that. I mean, that's that's one example of a regulatory benefit. I could cite a whole mm-hmm. series of other ones. Um, I'm not so trying to challenge you. I'm just trying to make it understandable for the audience. Cause... Oh, sure. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I guess my point is uh, there are a large number of benefits for those for those for existing broadcasters. The argument is they still want to have the government would like to see the same sets of rules or similar equivalent sets of rules for internet streamers. From my perspective, um, the level playing field argument just isn't a strong one in part because, as I mentioned, there are these different benefits. One of the other arguments, though, is the the government would make is they would say, listen, we need to support Canadian content and we're concerned about whether or not there'll be enough funding to do so. I'd argue that uh, that the reality is that over the last couple of years, we've seen record amounts of Canadian content being created and money put into it. In fact, the head of the regulator, the CRTC, says Netflix is the largest source of money for that production. And so in a certain hmm. respects, this comes down to a question of whether or not you think a voluntary market-based approach where people want to invest in Canada is good enough, or do we need a mandated system that would require that to take place? And how are the streamers reacting to this news? 
Well, we haven't heard a lot from them, but I think there is some cause for concern. And as I mentioned, the streamers are putting a lot of money already into Canada. And if we're going to move into a system where the CRTC is going to dictate how much they have to spend or how much they have to contribute on Canadian content every year, that's a process that I think is going to play out over quite a number of years. And one of the risks that we face with this proposal is that the companies who are already spending hundreds of millions in Canada may pull back, at least in the short to medium term, because they're not even going to, sure, going to be sure if that spend is even going to count towards their regulatory requirements. Could it work this way? Because um, apparently, uh, if approved, online broadcasters uh, would have to promote Canadian content. So you know how uh, it says suggested for you when you go into Netflix. I don't know if you use Netflix, but it says suggested for you or new releases. Would they just have to add another line that says Canadian content that, you know, rises to the top of the of the offerings? And would that be enough? Well, that's a great question, and, and it does highlight that one of the visions is basically a CRTC-approved Netflix uh, that Canadians would have to subscribe to. They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't be able to subscribe to the Netflix that Netflix would normally make available based essentially on the stuff people want to watch based on their usage patterns, but rather there would be a requirement to promote Canadian content along the way. For anyone who does use Netflix, and of course I'm a subscriber as well, it's actually not that hard to find Canadian content. You just have to type in the word Canada and you get a whole series of categories. Uh, but the government has been certainly talking about the desire to uh, increase promotion, and this is seen as one way to do it. Uh, I read that uh, contributions to Canadian music and uh, CanCon could amount to as much as $830 million if the CRTC gets its way by 2023. Is this a cash grab? Well, the, the Heritage Minister, Stephen Guibault, has, has said for, for a number of months now that his legislative approach is going to be all about uh, getting money from web giants. And so that's certainly the goal. I mean, I think it is worth noting that, as I mentioned, those companies are already spending quite a bit. This would set uh, potentially a new bar and possibly a higher bar uh, because we don't know the precise amounts that they're spending. Um, but so so it, it holds the promise in a number of years once the CRTC has sorted this out of providing more money. Uh, but of course, as I mentioned, in the short to medium term, until that process does get sorted out, and we're likely to see that play out over a number of years and even the prospect of court cases, um, it's possible that we'll, we will see less investment in Canada. Uh, the CRTC, you can argue, uh, it's made a mess with its uh, regulation or lack of the regulation on our telecoms. Uh, system. We I just was reading a report and talking about it earlier on that a new report out of Helsinki says that Canada has the most expensive monthly prices for internet access in the developed world. Uh, TELUS, Bell and Rogers, all at the top three in the world, Michael. So if this is the case and we've heard that the CRTC wants to come down hard on uh, those big three, uh, yet they've, they haven't dropped any of their prices as asked um, yet because they have two years to do this. Can we count on them doing the right thing when it comes to our streaming services that we're all really attached to now? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, there's huge frustration, I think, for a lot of Canadians about high wireless prices, and that's something that just never seems to change, despite lots and lots of promises from political parties, governments, and the regulator as well. Uh, I think there is some reason for concern. I mean, the CRTC hasn't uh, 
demonstrated that it necessarily sees consumers for certain in to, to be in their corner. And when we look at what the government is, is contemplating here, there's going to be a consumer cost associated with it. I mean, there's no doubt that if you're talking about millions down the road or hundreds of millions of dollars of new money, not to mention huge costs on the regulatory side, someone's going to pay for that. And I think mm-hmm. we know full well who that someone is going to be. Yeah, and the government's constantly saying, we're watching out for you, we're watching out for you. Yet, when it comes to the internet bills, we still have the highest internet bills. Like, I can't afford to pay, and I'm sure I'm not alone on this, 90 bucks or plus a month for my uh, internet and my cellular service, and also pay for all my streamers. I just got an email from Netflix the other day that I'm going to be going up to $14.99 a month. I remember when it was $9.99 a month. And that's only one of the streaming services that I take advantage of. Yeah, no, prices are going up. I mean, I think uh, you know Netflix has done well in part because a lot of people feel they could get good value for that price, especially when they compare it to what they were paying for many years with cable if they haven't cut their, their cable costs yet. Um, but the broad bucket of communications expenses is now one of the biggest, I think, for a lot of consumers. And that's why issues around, let's say, wireless pricing is so important and has been, I think, such a consistent source, persistent source uh, of frustration for so many. Because despite, as we've mentioned, the, the many promises of, of trying to address this issue of injecting new competition, uh, there is, I think, at this stage, widespread recognition that uh, certainly on the wireless side, we pay some of the highest uh, prices in the world. You just mentioned the latest study on that front, and yet we've seen so many promises that somehow we're going to have more competition and prices are going to come down, but they just simply never seem to. We have great productions going on in Canada right now. We have incredible talent. We have great writers. Um, our film crews are constantly busy, even during this pandemic. I think Schitt's Creek was a good example of, uh, you know, when they uh, started to just win, win, win at the Emmys, um, that if it's good, they will come. Do we have to get off the back of Canadian artists and of broadcasters and just let the marketplace discover good quality programming? And, and that would encourage them to make good quality program as opposed to it being mandated because I don't want to end up with a beachcombers. I never liked it when I was a kid and I'm sure I'd be bored to death with it now. Right. Well, I think you raise a good point. I mean, Schitt's Creek's a perfect example of, of a program that, that had success in Canada, but really took flight once it was available on Netflix and uh, was discoverable to a global audience. And the previous Heritage Commissioner, Commissioner Melanie Jolie, or Minister rather, Melanie Jolie, recognized that that was really an approach to take, where what you wanted to do was to promote Canadian content. You wanted to get it on these global services so that you'd have the ability to export this talent and generate revenues and popularity that way. Um, the government seems to have shifted away from that in favor of this more protectionist model and mandated Canadian content. And, you know, I think in some ways it's rather discouraging to see a heritage minister that in certain respects doesn't really have much confidence in Canadian content. He's not confident that there will continue to be investment. That's why he says we need it to be mandated. And he doesn't seem all that confident that there'd be the export side, which is why he's so focused internally. And um, in some ways, we've we've seen the success stories. You'd like to see more confidence uh, from political leaders that, that that kind of success can be replicated. So the takeaway from this is if this bill passes, odds are very high that if they do indeed, they being the streamers, have to uh, invest in CanCon and promote CanCon, it's going to cost more because 
it probably will. And somebody has to pay for it, and it'll likely be us. Yeah, I think it's. I don't. I don't think it's good news here at all. I think uh, the the takeaways here are that uh, we don't we don't have a CanCon crisis in terms of production, but yet the government is manufacturing one, and what we're left with is going to be higher prices, less investment in the short term in Canadian production, and probably less choice as well. And some of the streamers who might be thinking about the Canadian market and offering up those services will take a look at the regulatory costs and all those hassles and say Canada isn't a jurisdiction that they want to operate in. All right. I want to thank you for your time, Michael. It's been a really informative chat. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. And I want to bring into the conversation Alan Cross from the Ongoing History of New Music in a Journal of Musical Things, his fantastic blog that you can find online. Alan? How you doing? We're going to talk about Spotify, aren't we? We are. We're not going to talk about the American election right now. Uh, maybe in closing, you could give me your take on who you think w- is going to walk away with the uh, win. No, I'm, but I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going to wake up are... one day and it'll be all over. I'm just, no. <laughs> what, what'll be all over? That's if you don't uh, wake up one day, Alan. Um, okay. Let's get away from the macabre and um, the news happening uh, south of the border. The, this actually is happening south of the border as well. Musician Workers Union, they launched their Justice at Spotify campaign. We talked about that last week, and they were basically saying they just want to bring it up so um, that musicians are making at least a penny per um, stream. Uh, it's, so it's interesting that Spotify would answer by uh, promoting this new discovery mode that would it might allow your music to get out there in front of more ears. However, if it does, they're going to pay you less. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about what you know and your thoughts? This doesn't quite smell right to me. Let me explain what's going on. Spotify has announced discovery mode, which they will offer to artists and labels for, uh, to allow you to jump the queue with their algorithms so that you can insert your music ahead of everybody else in certain streams and certain playlists and so on. In addition, or in, in, in exchange for doing that, you will receive what they call a promotional royalty rate, which means uh, a reduced amount of royalty of, of payout for your streams. Now, this sounds to a lot of people like reverse payola. So we will do something for you if you give us some money. Uh, you don't have to give money up front, but basically what we'll do is we'll withhold money, which is basically the same sort of thing. And people who are in favor of, well, if you tried to do this in radio, you'd be jailed. You'd be convicted in jail. You cannot pay for play, which is basically what this is. However, what some people will say is, that, well, look, you, you go into a grocery store and you see a big display of some kind of product at the end of the aisle. The retailer didn't just put that there because they wanted to. They put that there because they either sold the end cap to a particular company or they're getting a discount on the goods that they sell on that end cap. Either way, it works out in the same thing. So uh, others will also say that if we go back to the old days of record stores, and you remember the big displays from of artists and albums you know, near the front or at the end of the aisle. Those were also paid for by the labels. So Spotify's argument, I'm sure, will be, well, we're just doing exactly what's always been done and continues to be done in places like retail outlets, retail stores. So uh, 
But at the same time, in the case of physical stores, you can walk right past that display and ignore it. In this case, your, the music that you would be fed is manipulated because somebody has come up with cash to jump the queue to make sure you hear this particular song. And that's what doesn't smell right. Can I also put in this, you know, with your your um, comparison to the record store where they might buy the displays at the front that you might walk past and you don't look at. The one thing about this discovery mode that stood out to me is you can say, OK, I want to be part of the discovery mode. But that doesn't guarantee that you're actually at the front of the store. In fact, you might not even appear at all. Well, no. What happens is that you jump the queue. And you have a better chance of being discovered, but with no guarantee. Yeah. So you are making a bet that someone will hear your song, start streaming it more, and that will make up for any losses that you might have gotten from receiving the reduced promotional royalty rate. And your song may blow up, so you would end up making a lot more money. Is this a response to what the the musicians union is saying? Like, okay, you know what? We don't want want a little more money. Is this a direct, like, thumb in the eye? I don't know. I, I think this was in the work works a lot longer than the that that particular uh, campaign. Um, and, and there's another thing that we have to kind of consider is that all the major record labels have equity positions in Spotify. So if, if the labels are, are going for this promotional deal, this discovery mode deal, they'd be basically paying themselves to promote their own music. Interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very weird thing, and I I I. I you know, I read Spotify's explanation of it and how it's going to be good for everybody and how it's going to offer more opportunities for artists to break through and for listeners to discover new music. But the bottom line is that you're still paying to play. Again, but Alan, let me ask you before I get, uh, we, we have to wrap up. Does anybody regulate Spotify or no. are they kind of able to do whatever they want? No, uh, this would have to be a class action lawsuit if anybody wanted to come against it. Huh. They can do whatever they want. Uh, just like a store can do whatever they want. Um, however, uh, old legacy media like television and radio, we, we can't do these things. So it's another one of those deals where uh, this new technology, uh, which is all foreign as far as we're concerned, is, is getting an advantage over what we do. And it's, uh, which leads into another thing in that there's going to be, finally, it looks like there's going to be a reopening of the Broadcast Act in Canada that will regulate. Yeah, we discussed that. Yeah, I'm hoping that that will will work out. Oh, really? Because uh, Michael Geist was on. He thought it was a bad idea. You think it's a good idea? Michael Geist always thinks these things are a bad idea. <laughs> uh, but somebody who works in radio like you and me, we will think it's an excellent idea because the last time the Broadcast Act was looked at in any particular depth was before anybody was using YouTube or Spotify or Facebook. It does not in any way address online broadcasters. Something right. Back in the day when we were both working on 102.1 The Edge. Right, so we're talking 2005, I think. So, you don't have to uh, date me, Alan. Come on. Well, sorry, uh, but but that needs to be sorted, and it really because right now, local domestic uh, producers and broadcasters are working at a massive disadvantage to the streaming giants. Alan, I'm going to leave it at that because I've run out of time. But a, a pleasure ending the show with you. Have yourself a fantastic afternoon. You too. I'm outside walking around right now. I can hear you. It's a gorgeous day for a walk. A high of uh, expected 17 this afternoon under sunny skies. Have a good one.
See you later. That's a wrap for the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Kelly Cotrera Show podcast. Tell your friends about it. And if you can join us between 9 and noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, we broadcast live. We'd love to have you along. Have a great day.